0: Hey everyone, welcome back to The Jacobin Show. I'm Jen Pan, here with Paul Prescott. Uh, We were actually off last week, uh, so happy to be back, of course, with Paul, um, who apparently can't hear... (laughs) So we'll try to figure that out. Uh, But in the meantime, um, I just want to mention, of course, we've got a great show today. Marianne Williamson, the one and only Marianne Williamson, who, of course, ran for president in 2020, but is also a, a national bestselling uh, author and activist, is going to be joining us a little later to talk about um, basically the horrors of capitalism and what kinds of campaigns she's getting involved in today, uh, what she makes of the Biden administration and basically how we move forward, um, uh, you know, post 2020 when the left is kind of on the back foot. Um, and we're also getting, uh, Matt Brunig, who is of course the founder and president of the People's Policy Project. He's been on the show before to talk about, uh, the welfare state, how we build a better one, what it looks like in other countries. He's going to be joining us, uh, in a little bit as well for a kind of mini interview to talk about Biden's new child tax credit and kind of the good and bad of it. Um, but what I'm really excited to talk to him about is kind of the difference between what he calls poor people benefits and the difference the difference between those and welfare benefits, which of course in the US have historically been one and the same. But I think he makes a pretty compelling argument for why we should think about break, breaking the link between those two things. Um, and I just want to mention that his... Um, his article is published in uh, Jacobin under the title, Let's Make the U.S. a Welfare Nation. You can also find it on his website, which, of course, is People's Policy Project. So, um, you know, I guess while we are waiting for Paul to <laughs> re-enter the chat... Um, there is something that I wanted to, well, there's something that I want that I've been thinking about for kind of a while. And since this show today, since it's the summer and this show today is kind of a bit of a grab bag of different topics, um, I, I thought maybe this would be a good time to kind of hit this topic. So I... I know I've joked either on this show or on weekends before that I talk about Bernie Sanders so much that if you were playing a drinking game based on how often I mentioned Bernie, you would probably like be dead of alcohol poisoning already. Um, apologies. I am going to talk about Bernie again. Uh, there are a couple different reasons why he has been on my mind lately. Um, the first is, I think I've mentioned before that I recently moved to Albuquerque. Um, so I've just been walking around and, you know, trying to get to know my new neighborhood. And on my walks, I've noticed in, in the area where I live, um, quite a few cars that have both Bernie 2016 and Bernie 2020 bumper stickers side by side. Um, So I'm always excited to see that. I'm always happy to see that. Um, And then the other reason why uh, I was thinking about Bernie is because some of you probably saw that there was a really great interview uh, with Bernie in the New York Times. Uh, he had an interview with the columnist Maureen Dowd and uh, he basically showed up to the interview with like a paper list of, of topics that he just refused to deviate from so it was like the spending bill uh, healthcare, um, paid family leave, just classic Bernie stuff and every time that Maureen Dowd would try to ask him about something else, like I think she tried to bring up um, like Dua Lipa or you know uh, uh, like Joe Manchin's houseboat Um, Bernie would just unabashedly pivot back to the list, uh, which, of course, I think is very classic Bernie. Like, he's done this time and time again. And it actually reminded me of what I think is his greatest pivot of all time. This happened back in 2016 when he was on the campaign trail. I don't know if you guys remember, but there was one incident where a group of topless protesters crashed his campaign event, right? Right. And afterwards, um, a reporter, like, asked him about it. Like, a reporter was like, hey, like, did did you see there was, like, this one woman and she, like, had something written across her bare chest? Did you happen to see what that was? And according to BuzzFeed, uh, (laughs) Bernie—let me bring up the quote here—Bernie seamlessly pivoted. He—Sierros then seamlessly pivoted from the subject of the woman's breasts to his economic message— No, actually, I was trying to focus on a couple of other things, he said. And what we were focusing on is the disappearance of the American middle class, the fact that almost all new income and wealth is going to the top 1%, and that we need to create an economy that works for all of us and not just wealthy campaign contributors. So uh, this, again, I love this. I mean, like I said, it's just super classic Bernie. And, um, you know, I... I guess just thinking about Bernie, it, it it has kind of made me think about how, you know, I think in the wake of his 2020 campaign, um, because of, you know, the end of his campaign and, of course, the onset of the pandemic, the left is kind of in a lull in this moment. Right. Like, I, I feel like things are pretty rudderless. And so just thinking about Bernie, you know, made me think about that and also made me think about what I think is so remarkable about his two campaigns, even though, of course, he did not win. And, uh, you know, the best way I can put it is that I sometimes joke that Bernie de-radicalized me. Um, I actually once said this to Boscar, and he pointed out, I think fairly, that the word "deradicalize" like kind of makes it sound like you're in Al-Qaeda. Um, of course, I promise I was not in a terrorist cell. What I mean is that Bernie's run for president in 2016 uh, was really significant because the left was so weak and so disconnected from any kind of political power in the U.S. at that time, or prior to his run, that I think it was really easy, if you were a leftist, to just take these extremely radical positions because there was really no hope of any of it coming to fruition in any real way, right? The stakes, I don't think, were just low. I think that they were completely non-existent. So what I mean is prior to 2016, it was really easy to go around you know, saying things like, full communism now or like abolish work or, you know, like I would obsess over these extremely obscure academic theories or even fetishize the very idea of marginality. And I think the kind of worst thing was that being immersed in this style of radicalism, which of course had no real world channel whatsoever, um, also sort of led to glamorizing like extremely confrontational or even antisocial behavior, like whether underground style, you know, revolutionary violence or being really into the idea that the left should like arm itself to the teeth for future revolutionary activity. Uh, and obviously for the 99, you know, f- for the vast majority of people who are into this, this so-called radicalism, including myself pre-Bernie, it's just talk, right? Like, it might seem exciting and even militant, but the truth is that this is just posturing. I mean, I probably don't have to tell anyone that, you know, anybody on the internet who's like, "We'll fuck around and find out, uh, is probably just sitting at home. Um, And I guess the point is not that, you know, people are blowhards or they're showing off or whatever. I think what I'm trying to get at is that this kind of posturing or this position comes from a place of total powerlessness and even nihilism. Because when you feel like there's no possibility for even the most basic social and economic reforms, it's kind of like, why not embrace the most esoteric concepts uh, and embrace these like totally unachievable or extreme positions, right? Now, why did this happen? Well, we know that the labor movement and the social safety net in the US have both been steadily eviscerated by free market champions on both sides of the aisle for decades, right? The Democratic Party has drifted to the right on economic policy over basically the last 40 or 50 years. And what this means is that since the 1970s, the left has essentially been confined to only these niche activist spaces and the academy. Um, And I think after so many years of just complete marginalization and decline, we really had no clear model on the left of what electoral success could even look like until Bernie ran in 2016. So, you know, he runs in 2016 and I, I, I think that things changed. I think that his insurgent bid for the presidency Um, It I think it went a lot further than anybody thought it would. He basically became the most popular politician in the US uh, over a very short period of time. And I think that those factors more than like any radical book about, say, post work or like communist automation or like abolishing the family or whatever actually showed us what is possible beyond our current like completely bleak moment of rampant economic inequality. Uh, I think our friend Matt Karp has put it really well. Last year on Twitter, he wrote, Bernie lost, but over five years, he gave the feeble American left a precious gift, a common program based on ambitious universal economic demands, Medicare for all, college for all, jobs for all, and a common politics based on a fierce rejection of billionaire class rule. These are things the U.S. left has never had before in this century, not after the battle in Seattle in 99, not after the crash in 08, not after Occupy in 11 or Ferguson in 14. Bernie's program and Bernie's politics showed that a left of thousands can become a left of millions. Now, obviously, I agree completely, um, and I just want to say, of course, don't, don't get me wrong, Bernie becoming president and Bernie's platform becoming policy was always, always a long shot. I don't think anybody had any illusions otherwise. That said, I do think it was still the best opportunity that the left has had in decades to try to make life a little less punishing for working people today. And I think if you're a socialist today, you essentially have two tasks at hand. So one is, of course, the work of trying to make radical left ideas popular. Um, you might call this consciousness raising or you could call it you know, building class consciousness among the working class. And I think over the last several decades, the left has tended to spend a disproportionate amount of its time and energy on this part. Um, And of course, again, it's precisely because we have had no political power, and it's really the only thing that we've been able to do, right? Uh, Education, trying to get the message out there, uh, trying to shift the Overton window, as some people say. But I actually think that post-Bernie, the more important task which unfortunately is also the more difficult task, is finding a way of actually amassing power so we can transform any existing public goodwill toward left ideas into reality. So what I mean is, after 2016, we basically know that there are parts of Bernie's platform that are incredibly popular, right? So things like raising the minimum wage, Medicare for all, um paid family and sick leave, other forms of, you know, social spending, uh, increased spending on infrastructure. These are all ideas that currently have pretty widespread and robust public support and often across party lines. So, if we look at something like Medicare for all, the challenge that we're facing uh, when it comes to implementing Medicare for all actually is not an ideological battle of trying to convince you know the masses that our current healthcare system is incredibly broken and like cruel and dysfunctional. I think that most people already know from personal experience that healthcare in the U.S. is just like does not work, and uh, in many cases is outright barbaric, right? Um, So what that means is our main obstacle to winning Medicare for all is unfortunately the political system itself. Um, It isn't about changing hearts and minds necessarily. It's about finding a way to build enough working class power to actually overcome the policymakers and uh, just the other elites who are incredibly hostile to the idea of single payer health care, despite what the majority of their constituents want. Uh, We have to find a way to confront the ruling class, in other words. So, you know, when I say that Bernie, quote, de-radicalized me, um, I don't think it doesn't mean that he made me more centrist or more moderate. Um, I'm sure there are some people who see it that way. But what I'm actually talking about is that if, you know, for me, and I think for many others, his two campaigns demonstrated that we really need to think seriously about political strategy um, and, and also that left politics is not or should not be about being the most radical person in any given room, right, or, or even cultivating a vanguard. Uh, I think that Bernie showed us that it's possible to craft a majoritarian politics around the kind of world that we want. And just to kind of wrap up, you know, if I haven't said it explicitly before, I personally think that the most important political project of our time in the U.S. right now is Medicare for All. Uh, of course, this is a campaign that was kind of jump started by Bernie. Um, and, and as he has pointed out many times, the reason Medicare for All is important isn't isn't just that our for for profit healthcare system is cruel and dysfunctional and it kills people although of course you know as i said before all those things are true Uh, But Medicare for all is also crucial because it's a program that would really help shift power away from a small number of employers to the vast majority of workers. Uh, And it does this, of course, by simply reducing the need for workers to stay in bad jobs in order to keep their employer sponsored health care. Medicare for all would make uh, being unemployed far less harrowing. And um, I think we also have like a few studies that show that it would probably raise a lot of people's wages. So for me, after Bernie, I think when we're deciding where and how we're going to commit our political energy, I think that the question, the very first question that we start with has to be the question, will this help transfer power to the working class? Um, You know, not is this radical or is this going to overthrow capitalism tomorrow? Or even like, is this reformist? But rather, as I said, will this transfer power to the working class? And I think that Bernie's two campaigns really helped clarify uh, what our priorities should be in this regard. And I also want to say that I do think that he helped uh, lay a partial blueprint for how to win. Now, of course, you know, he did not win. So again, this blueprint is only partial. Uh, but 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 that said, I do think that there is a lot that we can take away from his strategy. So uh, I think among, you know, Bernie fans, uh, the, the high point of his campaign in 2020 is often thought of as, uh, right after the Nevada caucus, right? He won that caucus. It was like a tough and ugly fight. Um, but he came out on top and, uh, I think, you know, it, it it really looked like he was picking up steam. Uh, and then of course, you know, there was the disappointment of Super Tuesday. Um, but I also want to point out, uh, on Super Tuesday, he won California. And I actually think that this doesn't get talked about enough, but I, like, I think it's really important. Why? Because California is the most populous and most diverse state in the U.S., first of all. Uh, but the second reason, and I think this is more important, the way that he won was just, uh, like, unbeatable ground game. And, and part of that ground game included uh, going really going to uh, blocks of voters or blocks of people who lots of politicians had kind of written off. So he very heavily canvassed and uh, did outreach in Latino neighborhoods, in Asian American neighborhoods. Uh, And these are two racial groups that actually politicians tend to ignore quite a bit. Um, It's kind of a, you know, sick cycle where it's, 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 especially with Asian Americans, the idea is like, Oh, well, they don't, they don't vote turnout is low. So like, why would we reach out to them? Bernie threw that by the wayside. Uh, like I said, canvassed heavily among these two groups and won them. Uh, he won a lot of working class voters. Actually, he, as I said, won the state. Um, and and so again, I think that even though you know, it has to be said again, he didn't win. There is a lot that we can take away. And just to kind of wrap up on you know the subject of radicalism or like de radicalization. Uh, I just, of course, have to invoke that when Bernie talks about his platform, he, of course, very famously often says, these ideas are not radical. Um, And I personally think that that is a perfect way of approaching politics.
1: Very well said. I'm back. Sorry about that. (laughs) You Um, arrived just in time. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. And I caught a lot what you said. I think that that's really well said. And I I think, you know, while it's true that these social democratic ideas and policies aren't radical, I think it's also true that in this moment for me, fighting for social democracy is the thing radicals, if you care about that label, should do um, at this moment. And, you know, after Bernie, there was a lot of like pessimism on the left or a lot of talk about, you know, should we be pessimistic or optimistic? And maybe I'm delusional or or a little crazy, but I actually thought our takeaway after Bernie should have been pretty optimistic. I think the takeaway was, wow, we're on to something here. Mm -hmm. These ideas are popular. There is a base for them. We need to keep campaigning around them. We can become more rooted in working class communities and institutions. We can can now have a basis to reestablish that connection between the left and labor. Mm -hmm. And yes, these policies are basic in many ways. Like we should have won these things 80 years ago, but it's like, I mean, so what? Mm -hmm. This is where we are. And I think, you know, it's radical to think about um, not just about what you're fighting for, but who who you're moving to fight for something like what constituencies can you actually move to Mm -hmm. fight? Mm -hmm. And that is what's going to set the stage for winning more in the future. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in this country, we're starting from a very low level of class consciousness and class organization. We know we've never had a viable labor party we're still at the fundamental point of what some people call like class formation or just mm-hmm. getting more working class people to act as a class for, for itself. Mm-hmm. And so for me, what this means is like our immediate tasks are getting are things like getting more people in unions, more people to experience successful strikes, more campaigns, winning um, tax rich ballot initiatives, which we've talked about on the show before mm-hmm. more unions endorsing Medicare for all you know, more candidates who are, you know, working class champions winning in like Republican rural districts, Uh, you know, renewable energy projects that are using uh, union labor. And like none of these things are necessarily revolutionary. And you might think these are pretty basic, but I think these are like the necessary prerequisites uh, before we can really start going for more. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, as limited as electoral politics are, I think it forced many of us on the left to start thinking more seriously about politics. Um, And Jane McAlevey talks a lot about the importance of yes or no, or up and down campaigns. So campaigns with a clear definition of winning and losing. So workers either vote and the majority join the union or they don't. Mm -hmm. The, um, The ballot initiative either wins or it doesn't. And I think like this electoral campaign forced us to think about, okay, why is this community or demographic not one over to the message? What do we have to do to move a certain constituency? And usually you'll find the answer has nothing to do with sloganeering or posturing or being the most radical. And I think, you know, elections kind of register the mood of the country. And mm-hmm. I think this election showed there's a lot of potential for leftists mm-hmm. actually, um, but we have a lot of work to do. Yeah, And that work is not going to look like Russia in 1917. Um, at least I don't think so. I mean, it's probably going to look more like the well, Workers you're not Party. storming the
0: Winter Palace after this? I'm
1: not. I mean, if other people do it, I'll, I'll type <laughs> on. Um, but, you know, it's probably going to look more like a protracted period like the Workers' Party in Brazil, mm-hmm. which built up, you know, first it started in a region and built up literally over decades to the point now where they, you know, got in power and can do some things. Mm-hmm. But so that's going to require staying focused on these important reforms for a long period of time. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and, and that's hard enough. I mean, can yeah. we start... And like I hate to use like a corny sports analogy, but it's like I haven't played basketball in years. Like my first goal, if I want to play again, I'm not gonna like try to get into the European leagues. (laughs)
0: Like
1: maybe I should like try to beat my brother in the game one on one first.
0: Start start with horse.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you know. Um, so and I don't know. I mean, I guess it sucks that maybe we're at a more elementary level, but like I guess the good news, yeah, I mean and, and actually the good news of that is that it kind of simplifies our tasks. (laughs) You know, (laughs) we're, we're not in power yet. We don't need to like worry about how we're not going to sell out yet. Mm -hmm. Like, how about we like increase union density to like 20%. (laughs) That'd be cool.
0: Right. Yeah. 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 Agree. Agree. Totally. Um, And I I, want to add uh, because, you know, you, you brought up earlier this idea that uh, right after Bernie, it was kind of like, should we be pessimistic? Should we be optimistic? Uh, I agree with you. I felt pretty optimistic. I mean, it obviously like sucked a lot that he, you know, didn't, didn't win in 2016 and didn't win in 2020. Like there's no, like, I don't, I don't, obviously like i'm not trying to say like i feel great because the like real success was the friends that we made during the campaign or whatever you know like that corny line like right. i don't believe that like it was it was a it was a devastating blow but i think you know on the subject of optimism or maybe i should say like tempered optimism um something else i was thinking is like the flip side of the coin of like radical leftist nihilism where you're just like basically like with your guns and like ready for the revolution and you know just like default to the most like radical or like nihilistic or extreme uh left position you can think of i think that the flip side to that coin is a kind of like weird over optimism optimism or triumphalism i guess where like you know i And actually, like, unfortunately, like, I think that, like, lots of people still kind of fall into this, and I myself may fall into it at times as well. But it's kind Mm -hmm. of like, you know, like, a big strike happens, right? Or like, uh, or like, you know, Bernie, like, won one caucus, or, you know, um, or, or like the, like, when the NBA players went on strike, um, during the Black Lives Matter protests, I think sometimes there's a lot of, of talk where it's like, oh, like, things are really, like, kicking off, and, and, there's often an implication that, um, a group of, you know, oppressed or exploited people, whether that's like blue collar working class people or like black people as a racial group are just like already revolutionary and just like waiting to kick off if we would just remove the boot from their neck. Um, and I don't think that that kind of left, uh, dialogue or discourse is healthy either. And I actually think that Bernie was sort of able to like, at least for me, like, help me become clearer-eyed about like who people are and what their politics and what their you know interests are. As as I think I've said many times on this show, people are actually pretty idiosyncratic. Um, right. So you know, like we brought this up before, you can have a voter in Florida who will vote to uh, raise the minimum wage to fifteen dollars, but will also vote for Trump. Um, I think people are just less sort of predictable than uh we sometimes make them out to be and of course i hope it goes without saying that just because you're blue collar or you know black or a person of color like in some kind of like historically marginalized group like doesn't mean that you are radical and i think that sometimes the left maybe not purposely but uh has kind of inadvertently like promulgated that narrative
1: right yeah and because it's kind of an easier narrative because, you know, I think an organized constituency has to be built. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not like ready-made, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think, and again, like the electoral realm kind of teaches like, okay, you got to start getting into some of the messy politics of that, you know? And it's like, okay, why, why didn't we have our Jim Clyburn there (laughs) in a position that, I mean, that that happened over decades, you know, Mm -hmm. that couldn't have been, I got, I sometimes get in some arguments with people about, south carolina like well bernie would have done this if he would have shaken more hands with this person or that Mm -hmm. person it's like well no i mean he had a few months essentially to like try and over uh, you know overturn the hegemony of the democratic party establishment that's been built um for generations Mm -hmm. you know um and i can't believe i'm saying this but i don't consider myself a maoist but i think (laughs) the the, the concept that i
0: (laughs) right the (laughs) concept
1: that i love of protracted struggle on all fronts I think is actually extremely relevant and we can adopt it for where we are today Mm -hmm. um it it has to be a very protracted, um you know level of engagement in Mm -hmm. in different in different areas of politics that to really like move forward
0: I have a really quick question for you because you you have been an organizer, a, a labor organizer, prior to Bernie, through Bernie, and of course, after Bernie. Um, I'm not sure if you were active in DSA before Bernie, but I think you were, right? Like, you're, you're uh, an OG. <laughs>
1: um, on, actually, no, DSA okay. specifically through Bernie. OK, but, OK. But you were yeah, involved in like, politics yeah. broadly, yeah, yeah, before then, yeah. So
0: I, I, I am wondering if you feel like the left right now, post-Bernie, is kind of back to where it was before Bernie, or has something changed, or what? What is different about it?
1: Well, I don't think it's gone back. I, I still think we're in a better position now. That's not saying much. I mean, <laughs> again, literally, people need to remember like twenty thirteen is like holy shit, we got twenty socialists in a room. Right. Right. We are right. we are on to something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean, I think yeah, we we definitely cleared some hurdles. I don't think we're we're back to then, but mm-hmm. I think, and this is something you know. Adolf Rita said to me a lot about, you know, what he was hoping would happen during Bernie was like, people would view it kind of soberly as like an organizing opportunity. And, you know, and that kind of rang true for me, because like through the labor for Bernie work, we did, you know, we established a lot of contacts of unions that we still work with today Mm -hmm. on things like Medicare for all or different things. Um, You know, so I don't think enough of that opportunity was grabbed. I think, you know, in certain areas of the country, yes, in certain cities, certain regions. Um, but, yeah, I think people do are we are at a point of being, like, um, a little rudderless and kind of all over the place and going from one thing to the next. Um, and what I kind of hope was, like, again, Bernie, yes, the hope, the Hail Mary was that he won, but, like, more importantly, he kind of established, like, okay, here is a whole slew of policies that I've just proven are very popular. Even though I didn't win, I proved they're very popular – and now let's like keep keep organizing around them. Um, so and again, I think that's happened in in some ways, but um, not in others. I but I do think we're still in a better place than we were uh, in the pre-Bernie the dark pre-Bernie days.
0: <laughs> right, right. The dark ages. Um, since you mentioned Adolf Reed, I, I, actually forgot to say this earlier, but our guests for next week are going to be both Adolf Reed and Walter Ben Michaels. So you definitely do not want to miss that. So tune into our show next week. Um, I think it's going to be a really fun discussion. Uh, Walter Ben Michaels recently gave a keynote at a conference, which he's going to be talking about when we have him on. And Adolf Reed has, I think one or two new pieces in non-site, uh, which is the publication that I, I think they're both contributing editors to. Um, So just a preview of next week's show. Um, And on that note, um, I think that we have our first guest here with us. Uh, We are bringing on Matt Brunig, who is, of course, the founder and president of the People's Policy Project. Uh, Matt, welcome back to The Jacobin Show. You are now a repeat guest. Uh, we've been saying that you're kind of like our welfare king, I guess. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes, uh, yes. Uh, not not in the literal sense that I am uh, have Cadillacs and food stamps, but right. uh, well, that's what I aspire to. Yeah,
0: exactly. Um, <laughs> and actually, so on that subject, uh, you recently had a piece uh, which you published on the People's Policy Podcast. Uh, project website, uh, but it was also published on Jacobin with the title, Let's Make the US a Welfare Nation. Um, And in this piece, you look at the new child tax credit, uh, which of course began earlier this month, and you show that the the rollout of this benefit now means that 65% of people in the US live in a household now where at least one person is receiving a monthly check from the government. Prior to this new CTC, it was only 28%. And of course, the monthly check is not just the CTC, but it's things like disability and social security. So I, when I was reading your piece, I thought that the kind of heart of it was that in your piece, you distinguish between welfare benefits and what you call poor people benefits. Mm -hmm. And of course, in the US, historically, these have been one, one and the same, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But you argue that the new CTC kind of breaks that link a little bit. So can you talk a little bit about what it does sort of differently? And then following from that, why do we want welfare benefits, but not poor people benefits?
2: Yeah, so I mean, the, the old CTC was also not a uh, poor people benefit, um, but it was it was also not a very salient benefit. You didn't receive a monthly check. It just kind of got. Lopped off your taxes in a very opaque way. So now we have something that looks much more like a conventional welfare benefit. It's coming in the account every month. It's a check. Uh, you know, it's very, very conspicuous. And so, in that sense, we have this this new welfare benefit in a in a traditional sense of the word. And. What I was trying to point out in the piece is, and, and it might be useful to get a little background on this, there have been these debates in the policy circles for going back, you know, 15, 20 years, um, including a lot of people on the left and center left who, you know, they would make these claims that people really don't want to receive you know, they don't want handouts, they don't want handouts, they don't want handouts, right? So we need to focus on increasing their wages, or we need to focus on maybe giving them money in ways that are is sort of opaque to them, so they don't feel like they're receiving a handout. Um, and that even poor people don't like receiving handouts, they feel kind of gross about it, nobody wants to be on food stamps, it feels stigmatized, etc., etc. And... So that's kind of been the underlying theory of why people on the left have been so supportive of this sort of tax credit state that we've built. And what I try to point out is that that whole analysis, what it misses is that these benefits that people you know, report not liking <laughs> are benefits that don't really go to a lot of people. Uh, they mainly go to a very, very you know, small group of poor people. And of course, they're going to gain a stigma there. But if you create a different kind of benefit that's not exclusive to the poor, then you know odds are it's not going to have the same kind of stigma. And so I think the new child tax credit fits that mold as a, as a very clear welfare benefit. Check every month in your account, but not a poor people benefit. And it's the first time we've done that in, oh, man, <laughs> decades and decades and decades.
0: Right. There's some statistics that says something like, you know, 90%, over 90% of Americans will receive some sort of government benefit in their lifetime. Um, and that's any government benefit across the board, obviously, for lots of people, that's Social Security. Uh, but because so many of these benefits, with the exception of Social Security, and now this CTC have been tied up in the tax code in these really like obscure, like kind of non-obvious ways, lots of people don't even realize they're getting help from the government. I mean, when you get your tax refund back, that just like, oh, cool, like that was my money or whatever. Uh, So I think that your point about, you know, like an actual check that is coming to people that they can see that that is is a really good thing.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, they used to Suzanne Mettler has a phrase for this, the submerged state and You know I mean part of the justification for that was you know people don't want to feel like they 're getting benefits, so you kind of got to trick them into getting benefits um, and then also you know to kind of trick conservatives as well, you know so that they you know if you can kind of pitch it as a tax cut, it might be a bit a bit more sellable to them. Um, but, yeah, and I mean, I, like I said, I, I think that that rationale it, 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 you know what they failed to account for in all this is they would look to benefits that were poor people benefits. they mm-hmm. would look to things like food stamps or wIC or school lunch or Medicaid to some degree, and you know and then extrapolate from there and in the American context, maybe you know that 's just kind of you feel like that 's all you can do, and so you say, well, we, you know we need to try something else but in, in other contexts, it's like if you really want to test this theory, we need to put out a benefit that is not exclusive to poor people and mm-hmm. see if that same kind of stigma attaches. And I, don't know, I hope that uh, that won't be the case here. It's kind of hard to imagine that it would, you know, with 90 uh, percent of kids getting it. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh.
0: Um, not, not to, not to get you off on a tangent about the Nordic States, which I know of course is your other interest, but I mean, they, their, uh, their kind of system would seem to suggest that you do destigmatize uh, social services when they are available to a wider number of people, right?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, they've had a monthly child benefit, you know, I think Sweden was the first one to kick it off in like, like 1915 or something like that. Like they've had this for over a hundred years. Um, And yeah, it, you know, people like the welfare state there. It's, it's so beloved that they've kind of made it their international brand. Um, You know, like we, we go out and talk about our great, you know, tech companies and innovation and they, they want to tell you about their baby boxes and stuff like <laughs> right, that. Right.
0: So, yeah. Um, so I, I, I want to go back to the CTC because in your piece, you, um, you do mention that uh, the CTC, the new CTC, for all of you know its kind of advantages that we just talked about, um, it was billed as something that would finally get benefits to the poorest people. And you mentioned that it doesn't actually do that. Um, and you don't spend a ton of time like kind of unpacking that in the piece. So I'm wondering if you can talk about why, like, why the benefits still aren't getting to the poorest of the poor and what kind of changes would need to happen to, um, to make sure that they're getting those benefits.
2: Yeah, so I wrote a lot of pieces about this when the uh, bill was being passed, and I've written many since it's been passed. And the basic problem here is we had this old child tax credit, and the way it worked is at the end of the year when you filed your taxes, they would look at how much income you had, and you know you'd get a certain benefit based on that. And the old benefit, it didn't go to poor people, of course. If you don't file taxes, you didn't get anything, and if your income wasn't high enough for the credit to take effect, you didn't get anything e- either. So the old design was was meant to not go to poor people. And instead of saying, oh, hey, we're creating kind of a whole new benefit here that we do plan to go to poor people, let's rethink how we're doing this, they just said, we can kind of graft this on to the existing child tax credit program and just say, hey, if you don't file taxes, it's okay, we're, you're, you're still eligible. But the problem then becomes, okay, yeah, you're eligible, but how do you get the benefit? If you file taxes, they have your bank account number; they just put it in your account. I, I got some in my account. I didn't do anything to get it. If you don't file taxes, they don't have any information like that. So now they, you know, non-filers, people who are too poor to file taxes. They have to now jump through a a really considerable set of hoops to try to get this benefit, and and they haven't been able to. And and as I was saying, when they were debating this bill, it was very predictable that they were not going to be able to do that. Um, as far as like what to do about it, my proposal from the beginning was let's have the Social Security Administration send this check out just like they send out checks to some 70 million elderly and disabled people each month. And they actually send out checks, people don't know this, to about three and a half million children each month um, because the, they, the, you are eligible for benefits if you're a disabled child or your parents die or, or something like that and And that would have made it much m- much m- you know easier to get. there are fifteen hundred social security offices around the country. Um, people enroll in social security as soon as they 're born, literally at the hospital. their kids are put in it, and they get a social security number. so I thought that was a much more natural home for it uh that 's not where they went <laughs> with it so now the question uh you know they 're probably not going to switch it over, so what can you do now? one, enroll kids at birth um, two. Uh, you know, hire some people to go out and try to find these people. Three, even though the Social Security Administration is not administering the benefit um, and, and state welfare offices aren't, you could probably work with those offices to at least make it possible to sign up through them mm-hmm. because they have thousands and thousands of locations across the country. Um, right now, the only way to get it, if you're a non you have to go through this website, Um, And very poor people, half of them don't even have computers at their home, um, you know, and the website sucks, and there's all sorts of problems with it, so... Yeah, basically trying to roll it out as close as you can to my initial proposal by kind of allowing the existing welfare institutions where poor people do interact, where they do go sign up for food stamps and do sign up to get their disability checks, you know, try to, try to make it as similar to that as possible. That's, that's what I'm proposing. And they are going to have to make it permanent here in the next month or so with this new reconciliation bill. And I know there are people in Congress like Senator Brown and certainly Senator Sanders who are trying to make changes so that it will become more practical for very poor people to sign up. Um, But I don't know if though, you know, how that's going to shake out.
0: So I think uh, this is our last question for you, and then we will let you go go back to People's Policy Project. Um, But I was wondering, just again on the subject of kind of uh, this uh, divide or like this difference between, you know, so-called poor people benefits and welfare benefits um do you see any other current poor people benefits that have the potential to be turned into kind of more general or larger welfare benefits uh, over let's say the course of the biden administration and then the very last question uh which i think kind of follows from that and this is a little bit broad so like answer how you want do you think this is the end or do you think this is the beginning at least of the end of welfare reform
2: yeah. So on the first question, <clears throat> just speaking practically based on, you know, the kind of things Biden might do, uh, the the most obvious benefit is school lunch. Um, right now, for a long time, you could only get school lunch if your income was below a certain percentage of the poverty line or something like that. Um, and then in the Obama administration, they made it to where if your school had enough poor people in it or your school district had enough poor people in it, they just gave it to everyone in those schools without checking. Um, and that was, you know, an OK step. And then for the last year or two, they've been giving it to all pretty much all kids because of the pandemic. Um, and they, they started giving people EBT cards cause kids weren't going to school. Uh, so like for the last year or two, we've had you sort of like universal free school lunch and, you know, uh, that seems like something you could make permanent. Uh, it's pretty small. It doesn't cost all that much. Um, so that would be the most practical thing, you know, within the confines of we have a moderate president and, you know, moderate Senate and all that. Mm-hmm. As far as the end of welfare reform, <clears throat> it's an interesting question, you know, um, you know, they <clears throat> what they should have done in 1996 when they got rid of aid to families with dependent children is they should have created a child allowance that just went out to everyone. Because the main problem with that old program was if you tried to work or earn any money, you would lose all those benefits, and that created a lot of problems for people. People wanted to work, they wanted to make <laughs> more money, and then they couldn't, and they kind of got in this welfare trap. Um, and so replacing it with something like this is what they should have done in 96 and now they've done it and it looks like they might make it permanent so in that narrow sense yes are we have we gotten sort of religion on universal benefits more generally one thing to look at on that is this new reconciliation bill in it they're going to try to do like child care benefits and paid leave benefits and things like that and so it'll be interesting to see if They design those in a way that's similar to like the new CTC, or if they, or if it's still the old garbage. (laughs) And (laughs) I, so far it looks like it's just the old garbage. So we'll see.
0: Well, the other, the other thing that I think about, um, of course when i think about welfare reform is work requirements um and luckily like nobody you know so far as i know like found some way to graft those onto the child tax credit although as you point out because of course it is through the tax code that implies that you need some sort of income um but i'm wondering just as a follow-up like do you see work requirements uh i, I mean You know they're an issue again of course because you know now republicans want to kick people off unemployment um and i'm just i'm just wondering if you see any uh opportunities or any space for progress to be made in that area i mean i think that everybody i think that like democrats now actually you tell me do democrats now and not just bernie sanders but like democrats like generally agree that well that work requirements didn't work then and don't work now in terms of getting people back into the workforce
2: um, I don't know I don't yeah. I mean I think they I think most especially thinking in the policy world most people think that these phased-in benefits we had like the old child tax credit and then and the current earned income tax credit that it does encourage people to work more because <clears throat> you know the more you work the more benefit you get Um, but it's weird because they, they <laughs> they're very all over the map on this and it really kind of depends on the personalities involved so like When Trump was in office, of course, the Republicans, every time they're in office, they try to attach more work requirements to food stamps and Medicaid. And the Democrats were furious about this. Oh my God, you're gonna throw all these poor people off their health insurance just because they can't get a job? What if they can't find a job? Even if they can't, whatever, like they're still sick. There was like this big kind of thing. And then you turn around and you say, well, uh, we should get rid of the Earn Income Tax Credit. It's pretty much the same kind of thing. If you can't get work, you can't get the Earn Income Tax Credit, we should fu- n- they don't want to hear that. <laughs> and so it's sort of like, well, wait, which is it? Which one do we, what do we want to attach this to or not? And then with unemployment insurance, you know, right now, all the GOP states have gotten rid of the uh, extra unemployment benefits. They yeah. got rid of them in the last month. And the democratic states, they're all gonna get rid of them in September 6th. That's the schedule. And the Biden administration could have stopped the Republican states from cutting some of the unemployment benefits. The way the statute was set out, they did not... uh, It it actually obligates the Labor Department to pay these benefits, um, and Biden could have tried to do something to get around that and like administer it directly, and he just chose not to. And it seems like they kind of are buying into this idea that unemployment benefits are are holding uh, employment back. Um, So... You know, they'll probably let those expire in September 6th. And I had a piece up in Jacobin just yesterday saying that's there's 20 million people who live in households that are going to lose those benefits in September 6th. And it does it does not look like they're all going to be reemployed in that uh, in the next 40 days. Right. So,
0: yeah, uh, well, Matt, we definitely will have to have you back on at some point for another state of the welfare state. Um, Again, Matt Brunig, the founder and president of the People's Policy Project. Go check out his work in Jacobin and also on the 3P website. Uh, Matt, thanks very much. Thank you. All right. So just want to quickly mention that we will be getting to Marianne Williamson very soon. I know you're all uh, waiting to hear from her, as am I. Um, But first, I think we are going to uh, just take a couple of Labor Paul questions. Labor Paul, of course, is our segment where you submit questions to our resident labor expert, Paul, and he will take a couple. I think for the last couple of episodes, um, we've had labor guests on, so we haven't been able to answer questions. So we have got a few this week. Um, so let's see. So the first one we have, um, I think we have two questions and they come from a reader or a viewer, Alex Day, uh, who writes, should, st- should shop stewards or as they are called in my union, which is the Berkeley Federation of Teachers, site representatives, be paid a yearly stipend? What are the pros and cons from a rank and file perspective?
1: All right. Well, first, let me apologize to Alex. I'm an old man that doesn't know how to use Twitter. So Alex posted this question on Twitter uh, a while ago, and I just got around to seeing it. Um, but I'll start by backing up and talking about what a shop steward is. Um, I'm going to take a little detour, then come back to the question. So you might hear different names for it. Like in my teacher's union, we call them building reps. But shop stewards are the main point of contact for the union on the shop floor and in the worksite. They are workers just like everyone else. They don't get paid by the union, but they are elected by their fellow workers to represent them against management. And I think shop stewards are the most important people in labor unions. And I'll even go a step further and maybe be a little bit dramatic and think they are one of the most important political positions, period. And I say this because they are the most upfront and intimate representative of the union for workers. If you're in a big union local you may not often see the president of your local. Um, staff organizers, you may only see on a limited basis, but the shop steward works side by side with you every day and is the first person you should go to with a problem. Um, so, shop stewards are in charge of handling grievances. So, if your manager violates the contract, maybe it can be as simple as the shop steward has a quick talk with management and the issue is resolved, or maybe it goes further and the shop steward leads an arbitration with management. Or let's say you decide to take a collective action. You all decide to wear a union sticker or a union button one day. The shop steward should be the person coordinating that. They are crucial in the chain of communication and mobilization within a union. And so it can be very rewarding work. And let's look at what some shop stewards from Teamsters Local 728 talked about what they do. I mean, it empowers me. It empowers me to help empower others.
3: Oh, it's so rewarding. It's so rewarding just to know that people have someone they can depend on. Whenever they call me, I always
2: follow through. They don't have to worry about if I'm going to get back to them or not. And we do whatever we need to do in order to bring humility into the workplace. Whatever is wrong, we use the CBA as our handbook to have
3: it resolved. They have concerns, or sometimes they just want to vent. They might not
4: even want to do the whole process. They just might want to just talk and get it off their chest. Well, it makes you feel proud to be a part of something that's quite as big as the the International Brotherhood of Teamsters.
1: I love it. It makes me feel good because I'm
3: my gift as a human being is to help people. Um, It makes me feel good, especially when I give somebody, a a member my number, and they call me, they text me, and they tell me thank you. Absolutely awesome. It gives me a sense of purpose.
0: Empowered makes me feel uh, good to see people have less stress in the way they do their job.
2: Oh, I love it. I love helping people out. I mean, I love what I do. I am empowered
0: because I am a teacher, and I'm so thankful.
1: It's it's the most rewarding job that you ever can have.
2: It's my passion to help people, whether on or off the job. I'm excited to be able to help my peers.
3: So it makes me feel good to be a teamster and also a steward.
1: So let's go back to the question. Should shop stewards get paid an extra stipend for it? Um, I think it's an interesting question. On the one hand, you could say it is a lot of extra work. And anyone that is a good shop steward knows that they put in a lot of extra work and they should be compensated for their labor. But I actually may lean towards no, that they shouldn't necessarily get paid an extra stipend. You want people running for shop steward who care the most about building the union and representing their fellow co-workers. You don't want it to turn into something where people want to grab the position and hold on to it for material comfort and privileges. And now some people might hear that and think, well, what about union presidents and officials? Should they get paid extra? And I think that kind of opens up another can of worms. I think there are some union leaders that have definitely have a bloated outside salary, especially when compared to how much the workers they represent make. Um, sometimes, though much less often than the media wants you to believe, that kind of thing can lead to corruption and stagnant bureaucracy. Um, but having said that, you know, I th- there probably are some locals out there that might pay shop stewards a stipend. I don't think that would be the end of the world. I don't think that would inherently mean a bad thing happened. Um, but I, I would might lean towards, uh, thinking that, you know, shop stewards should be doing this on a voluntary, um, basis. But if you are watching and you are in a union, um, you should consider running to be a shop steward. It's incredibly important and uh, rewarding work, just like the people in those, uh, video were saying, and it's probably the most important work anyone on the left can be doing right now. Um, or if you just joined the union, try to find out who your shop steward is and talk to them. And I think uh, we have a follow-up question that um, is closely related by the same person. We want to throw that one up.
0: I just want to say before we get to the next question that I just really liked watching that like video of people yeah. talking about how proud they are to be shop stewards. Um, and it made me think like that's what bosses wish customer service representatives would be like like I just really love helping people but obviously you're not going to get that level of like actual like uh, I don't know commitment and like pride from something that your boss is forcing you to do like that can only come from being a shop steward so I echo what you said. If you are in a union, look into being a shop steward. All right, so sorry. For the second part of the question, um, the same person asks, follow up, what are the pros and cons from a rank and file perspective on full-time versus part-time paid organizers? By by part-time, I mean that an educator might get a partial release from 25% to 50% of their duty uh, day to do paid organizing for their local.
1: This is another good question. So, you know, all unions need some full-time staff organizers, whether it's for organizing a new workplace or representing current members, there's just too much work to be done overall to rely just on part-time people. But having said that, I absolutely think that if unions can do it, they should release current union members part-time to do organizing work. Because often these workers are more effective than the staff organizers, even if the staff organizer is great. They intimately know the job and the workers. So workers sometimes trust them more than a random staff organizer that might come out of a university. Um, and often there are a lot of little details about problems in the workplace that an actual worker will know. Um, so for example, we we can all know that teachers would like to get paid more, but actual to- teachers will know that sometimes our coworkers get more fired up about things like class size or about having functioning uh having functioning copy machines or having enough time to pee. Sometimes those are the real issues that might be the better uh, basis to start organizing on. And a worker will know that and uh, probably better than anyone else. So I think part-time release worker organizers help members see the union as something that they are a part of, not as something that's apart from them. Because often, you know, we try to say in the labor movement, you are the union. Uh, Many workers and Sometimes they have good reasons for doing this. They talk about the union as an other, like, well, the union will do this. We'll do that. And not really thinking about themselves as being the core part of the union. Um, the Communication Workers of America is a great example of a union that does this. We recently had on Les Leopold, who spoke about the Runaway Inequality Political Education Training Program, and they use workers to do that training. And these workers get, you know, release time from their job to be organizers and to do these trainings. So instead of some professor coming and talking about these challenging issues, it's better to have people, the workers know and can relate to better doing it. Um, so in conclusion, yes, I think, you know, we do need full-time staff organizers, but I think when unions can do it, workers should absolutely be released to do part-time organizing as well.
0: I, I guess I want to follow that up by, um, Asking, do you think that there are certain qualities that make someone better suited to be a shop steward or an organizer? Um, And I ask that not because I don't think that anyone could do it if, you know, they felt inclined to do it. But um, those are hard jobs. And I mean, you know, when you even just watching the video of the people talking about how much they enjoy being shop stewards, um, you have to really like people. Um, I think that you have to like uh, being kind of a broker or like a problem solver. I'm sorry. These are like businessy terms. um, And I I feel uncomfortable using them about like unions. (laughs) But I guess what I'm saying is like some people uh, are sort of, I think, have a kind of natural aptitude for the work of organizing. And again, this is not to say that everybody can't do it. um, But I'm just wondering, you know, from your perspective, like who I mean, I think actually Jane McAlevey has a term for it in in, uh, you know, in a labor setting or in the workplace. There are some people who I think she calls organic leaders. Um, And I actually don't know if she says that these are the best people to be shop stewards, like they might be suited for other things. Um, and we'll, we'll get her back on at some point to clarify. Um, but, you know, here here and now, what do you think are the qualities that, like, I don't know, people should be looking out for?
1: Yeah, that's a good point. And maybe I should amend what I say. Not necessarily everyone just go out and be a shop steward. You know, I think you should really want to do it. But I think what uh, definitely what you said, like wanting to like people, um, have some leadership qualities, liking to solve problems or, or help people out. Um, you know, you don't necessarily have to be the loudest person in the room. And I think one of the things Jane talks about with um, organic leaders or real leaders, um, and it might kind of sound paradoxical, but often these people are very good workers. Yeah. And it might sound like, oh, wait, you know, it doesn't mean yeah. you're a suck up to the boss, right. but like, you know, workers on the job, respect them. Um, you know, they, they look up to them, they do their job well, I think those people are well suited um, to be, shop stewards or in some kind of leadership position because they have respect of people around them. Um, you know, it's not some people might assume like the person that complains the most is actually usually not the leader and they actually might be quite unpopular with their coworkers. Um, you know, I think anyone's worked a job can relate to that. Um so I think those are some of the qualities. Um and yeah. And I think a lot of times Jane talks about it in the context of like a new organizing drive when you don't quite right. have a union yet identifying the leader. But I, you know, we should have her on. But I think those same people would do very well in the position of uh, shop steward.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's 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 funny that you mentioned the kind of anecdote about like the loudest person or like the most like yeah. h- confrontational person. Yeah. Um, in, in the room or in, in the workplace, because a few years ago, when the kind of like media unionizing, like, uh, I don't know, sort of like energy was starting to bubble up. Um, I just went to a kind of like general, uh, I wasn't working in media at the time, but you know, I was interested in in what was going on. So I went to a kind of general meeting where a union rep was talking to different media, um, uh, different media workers about like how they could start unionizing, and she was like so if you think about your workplace um, obviously in the early stages of an organizing campaign like things are very like you have to keep things like pretty secret you know like you really have to start you i mean you don't want the bosses catching wind of the fact that you're trying to organize so she was like the the organize or the yeah the union rep was like so who is the person that you would want to bring into your campaign early on is it the person who you know keeps their head down and just like does good work and you know doesn't make waves in the office or is it the person who's, like, really, who, like, complains a lot and is, like, always arguing with the boss and is just, like, super out there and, like, you you just know that they've got problems with the office? And almost every single person chose that person because I think that, in a way, it, like, right. it kind of is like, oh, well, like, they're already fired up about, like, workplace issues. Um, but, but this is all just to underscore that I think – you know, sometimes it can be a little counterintuitive um, or sometimes the qualities that make a good shop steward or a good organizer in the early stages of a campaign are not actually the same as the person who is like the loudest on the picket line or like who's a good rabble rouser who might be great in a different context. But so that's why I asked.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's exactly right. Yeah. Um, so should we introduce our guest?
0: Our guest of the hour, the one and only Marianne Williamson. Hi. All
1: right. Let me give a proper introduction. So Marianne Williamson, as I'm sure everyone knows, ran for president in 2020. She's the founder of Project Angel Food, the co-founder of Peace Alliance, and the author of 13 books, including, in 2019, the book, A Politics of Love, A Handbook for a New American Revolution. Welcome, Marianne.
3: Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Um, So I wanted to start with a question I think that you could speak to very well, and this is something I think that many of us on the left, whether you identify as a socialist or not, care about, and that is alienation. Um, So so many people in this country are deeply alienated, you know, whether that's alienated from politics, from their jobs, from each other, from society as a whole. Um, So what do you think is the root causes of this sort of alienation, and how do we fight it or overcome it?
3: Well, for the last 40 years, there's been an ever-shrinking number of people who stand a reasonable chance of actualizing their dreams in this country. And that hope that we can work and that it can produce something and that we can build connections with people and that we can make our dreams come true, that's what makes us feel we're part of a larger fabric of a society. What has happened particularly over the last 40 years, not that I'm romanticizing, American society or capitalism or anything like that before 40 years ago. But over the last 40 years, particularly, there has been such a specific and systemic rigging of the system, including a massive transfer of wealth into the hands of a very small group of people. And this has decimated some of the pillars of our democracy and of our sense of possibility for the vast majority of Americans. This has had a devastating effect. This has had a devastating effect because it has thrown so many people into a kind of economic survival mode, not knowing what they'll do if they get sick or if their children get sick, not knowing how they'll send their kids to college, not being able to have enough bandwidth and time to spend with their spouses, with their children, with their families, forcing both people to work even when it wasn't a situation where both parents wanted to work, but where both people had to work. None of those conditions were endemic of our society before the 1980s. And this has created alienation because it has destroyed the bonds of human relationship. People don't have enough time to be part of their community. They don't have enough time to be uh, be politically active. They don't have enough time to spend with their children, with their loved ones, to build relationships, to have vacations. So there has been a growing sense among people, which is legitimate, that this society doesn't give a shit about me, that I'm just trying to survive here. Now, that's very, very different than, for instance, when I grew up. We've never been perfect. We've never been a society that has manifest our purported ideals, certainly for people of color, et cetera. There's no doubt about that. However, there was a sense in my own lifetime that we were at least trying for that goal, and there was a sense that efforts to make it happen would not be as systemically obstructed as they are now. So now there is such hopelessness and there is so much rage and there is so much despair, most of which I feel is very legitimate and I understand it. And I recognize that we better fix that or there's going to be a chaos in the society unlike anything we've ever seen.
0: So I want to follow that up by asking, um, so you, of course, you know, in 2020, uh, ran in the Democratic presidential primary, Uh, but much like Bernie Sanders, who also ran, uh, you were both very fierce and outspoken critics of... Uh, a lot of the Democratic Party, uh, the Democratic Party elite, uh, a lot of mainstream centrist Democrats. And, you know, when we think about politics today, there are quite a few would be voters who are turned off not just by Democrats, but Republicans as well, um, especially working class voters, I think, are very turned off by partisan politics these days. So this is a, a, a difficult and broad question, but do you see a path for sort of moving beyond partisan politics in the U.S. right now?
3: There is a tyranny of limited conversation. There is a very narrow-minded approach to living and a very narrow-minded approach to politics that is cast upon us. It is imposed upon us. It comes from the media. It comes from the political parties. And, you know, none of it has to do with where people really live. It doesn't have to do with where people live in terms of the policies that it addresses. It doesn't have to do with where people really live in terms of, I believe, the nobility and the dignity and the decency that we are capable of. One of the things that I learned when I ran uh, for office is that when you actually talk to the voters, The American people are far more open to a conversation that moves beyond all that narrowness. People are open to depth. People are hungry for depth. People are hungry for meaning. And yet most people running, most traditional politicians, don't give them that. So if we want to move beyond that, we have to forge a new and a different conversation. In education, there is a concept of trauma-informed education. There is now a realization that so many children have had what's called uh, adverse childhood experiences. We understand that there's so many traumatized children, and our educational institutions have grown to accept that, embrace that, and try to accommodate that reality. It's not just children who are traumatized in this society. Adults are traumatized in this society. We don't just need trauma-informed education. We need a trauma-informed politics. We need a politics that speaks to that alienation that we were talking about. We need a politics that speaks with empathy and, and, and soulfulness to the deep pain that people are in living with chronic economic tension and anxiety every day of their lives, what it has done to them, what it has done to their bodies, what it has done to their relationships. So the, the partisan conversation is dead It is meaningless. I know it's everywhere. I know it's ubiquitous, but it contains within it no living spirit. There's a new conversation that is ready to emerge. And I believe, and I I feel even more of this having run for president. The people are ready for it. Let's remember, when it comes to politics in America, the people are not the problem. The people are not the problem. If you look at poll after poll, where the American people actually come down on issues, We've got 70% of, of Americans actually want Medicare for all. Yeah. We have over, uh, I think something like four. Well, we have a high percentage of Republicans. I don't know exactly yeah. what it is. I don't remember. But a high percentage of Republicans. You know, I always remind people, this is a country that in 2000, actually the people elected out Gore. This is the problem. Uh, I, I, I have been in too many audiences, including uh, uh, people who were there to listen to a political candidate. Who make me, who have absolutely convinced me that if people were actually given the real scoop of what's going on, people are not stupid. You speak to their nobility, they'll be noble. You speak to their dignity, they'll be dignified. You speak to their decency, they will be that. And we could have this constituency of conscience and consciousness and depth, but our politicians don't speak to that because that's not where they feel the votes are. And we need to simply move on and create a new conversation.
0: I, I would say I completely agree with that. Um, and, you know, the points that you were making about trauma and alienation, I think ring very true as well. Um, but I suppose my question is, all of that can often feel overwhelming, right? Uh, uh, the injustice that we face or that we're confronted with today can often feel insurmountable. And I, you know, you, of course, continue to be very active politically. I know that recently you've been championing progressive politicians like Nina Turner. Um, you're, of course, also working closely with advocates like Stephen Donziger, who's fighting Chevron. So um, just for you personally, how and and um I guess how do you decide where and, and how to dedicate your time and energy?
3: Every cell in the body is assigned. Some cells are assigned to the, to the bones, and some cells are assigned to the pancreas, and some cells are assigned to, um, some cells are assigned to the heart, some cells are assigned to the blood. Within all natural systems, there is some level of natural intelligence. And just as the cells of the body are assigned to where they can best be of use, I think that we all, in the depth of our being, it's what in the Eastern religions is called dharma, feel called. Some people feel called to science. Some people feel called to the arts. Some people feel called to to the healing arts. And I think all of us really do feel called to some level of collective political involvement. We do feel called. We just can't find a way to express that. The answer to your question, quite simply, is that I meditate. I I am a woman of faith. And I think that it is worth noting that the left wing, uh, almost aversion today to a spiritual conversation, except within very narrow confines, is an aberration. A lot of the abolitionist movement was grounded in the early early evangelicals in New Hampshire. Many of the women who were leaders of the women's suffragette movement were Quakers. And Dr. King, of course, was a Baptist preacher. The greatest social justice movements have been born of a consciousness that anything is possible. That's what faith gives you. Faith gives you a a visceral sense that, as we all know the line, the, uh, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. We are going to get there. We are going to get there. And America, you know, the history of the United States It's not that we have never swerved from the angels of our better nature, God knows, between slavery and and segregation and institutionalized oppression of women and genocide of Native Americans. Lord knows we've we've had many, many transgressions against the principles on which we purport to stand. But our history is that over time, we do tend to self-correct. Generations rise up. Generations rise up and they push back at the undemocratic forces. And I believe that as import, important as it is to identify our problems, this is a time for us to identify with the problem solvers. Identify with, well, the, the abolitionists did it, and the women suffragettes did it, and the civil rights movement did it, and damn it, we're going to do it. And you live in that space and you claim that space. And I believe that it is a, 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 a level of moral and spiritual uh, conviction that gives you a sense that that moral arc does always bend. How long it takes will have to do with how we act and what we make happen. And I know for those of us who are older, you don't necessarily have a sense it's all going to happen in your lifetime, but you're going to have the satisfaction of dying knowing that you did what you could while you were here. And you get to an age where that matters a lot.
1: I wish I had a better transition, but this topic is not very spiritual, but talking about the Biden administration now. um, So some of the the left, in the early days, we might have been a little bit pleasantly surprised um, at the Biden administration, the willingness to spend big in in a way, um, adopt some of the ideas that leftists have been putting out there. But now the infrastructure bill seems really stalled. Um, It's unclear what kind of big initiatives might come in the future, if any at all. I mean, what's your assessment overall of the Biden administration so far? And what do you think needs to be done going forward in this first term?
3: We were all just so excited that Trump was no longer in the White House. Mm -hmm. And it is to be uh, celebrated that we have interrupted that particular trajectory of neo-fascist authoritarian dictator consciousness (laughs) in the White House. So we were all very excited about that. And we are all very excited to say, hey, put FDR's picture over the mantle in the Oval Office. And he talks about FDR. They're talking about going big. And he has done some things on a domestic level, certainly, that we can all be happy about. Lena Khan being uh, appointed to head the FTC, uh, Jonathan Cantor at the, uh, at the DOJ on, on antitrust, his, his whole idea that monopolies are a problem and he's going after them. Well, that's really good. There's stuff in his proposed infrastructure bill that any of us can be happy about, Um, pre-K, universal pre-K, universal child care, and paid family leave, and um, extending the child credit. All of that's good. But in that area, as in most every area, even when they're getting it right, uh, my fear is that we're talking too little, too slow, and too late. These are things that should have been done 30 years ago things that should have been done 35 years ago. At this point, the situation is so dire for so many millions of people that we need a massive infusion of economic hope and opportunity. We should be talking at least about a $15 an hour minimum wage. We should be talking about Medicare for all. We should be talking about a Green New Deal. We should be talking, and and, and, and Joe, you know, Joe Biden, sometimes when I say we should be talking about them, Sometimes he does talk about them. It's time for us to say to the president, thank you for talking about it. Now, would you please do something about it? Don't just talk to me about how corporate taxes should be raised. Let's see some real action. And then also on the, on the foreign policy level, uh, I'm, I find him an extreme disappointment. I'm extremely disappointed at the Yemeni blockade, Saudi Arabians. Uh, I'm disappointed by all the sanctions, whether it has to, to do with Cuba or Venezuela or maximum pressure sanctions in Iran. So I, I, I find it kind of creepy the way and you see this with, uh, with the Nina Turner race versus the Chantel Brown race, that in order to be a good Democrat, you're supposed to line up with Biden, no matter what he says. That's no different than people saying that in order to be a good Republican, you need to line up with whatever Trump says. So I think it's time for us. You know, there was a time in my lifetime where liberals, progressives, the left in general, was acknowledged as a significant part of the political conversation. Now, we're not just being kicked out by the right, we're being kicked out by the Democratic Party. And it it does something to your head, doesn't it? Like, where are you supposed to go? And I think that's why we have to stick together. And know that the container will grow around us as we just continue to coalesce and articulate a conversation that is higher, that is sustainable, and that is healthy for our society and have faith that more and more people will hear us. And um, no, it's not uh, the neoliberalism of of Joe Biden, even when he does something which we can be grateful for, give him credit for and celebrate, which I certainly do.
1: And you write and talk a lot about violence and peace, uh, both in a geopolitical sense, but also even in an interpersonal sense. And the United States is a very violent country, I think it's fair to say. And you can see this um, not just in our foreign interventions by the military, but in our out of control gun violence, whether that's in urban areas and rural areas. What, what is it about our society and culture that allows this violence to be so pervasive?
3: Most of the time, violence is rooted in someone's despair and someone's rage and someone's sense of hopelessness. So I look at violence like I look at all these mental health issues that people talk about. What do you do about it? Stop driving people crazy. That which you do, which helps people thrive, helps people find the peace in their hearts. We know that poverty is is so much at the root of the violence in society. We can talk about the historical uh, legacy of violence stemming from the beginning of our founding, that is true. But what we can deal with, in, in addition to reckoning with our past, is reckoning with our present. We can see how so much of the increased violence stems from the war on drugs, stemmed from flooding particular neighborhood, particularly disadvantaged neighborhoods, particularly uh, neighborhoods of color, not only with drugs, but also with guns. And I think that there isn't a disconnection between personal violence and externalized violence. You know, people on the left are as emotionally and psychologically violent as people on the right. If you look at the way people behave on on social media, emotional violence is violence. Lying about people is violence. Mocking people is violence. Uh, judging people, when you don't even know what you're talking about, is violence. All of us could use some greater personal and interpersonal maturity. If we want a new politics, we have to learn how to debate honorably with people with whom we do not agree. So a lot of the violence is among people and between and among people who basically agree with each other on issues. And then we're talking about how the right is so violent. You know, they talk about about guns, but, you know, when other people over on this side talking about guillotines, I, you know, I know, well, I don't know, worry about that. They don't really mean it literally. Well, my conservative friends don't know that they don't mean it literally. So I think that peace does begin inside the heart. You know, Gandhi said that the end is inherent in the means. The traditional political perspective is the end justifies the means. But the philosophy of nonviolence, the political philosophy of nonviolence, as articulated by Gandhi and Dr. King, is that the end is inherent in the means. So if we ourselves do not learn how to be nonviolent, we will not be conduits. We will not be those who can transmit uh, the energies that will create a nonviolent world. So it does have to begin with us. And it begins with us and our own personal relationships, including our personal relationships regarding politics.
0: So, you know, you had mentioned social media and something I really wanted to ask you was, um, you know, obviously you are a national figure, you're a best-selling author, um, you have almost 100k subscribers on YouTube, I believe, and of course you've just launched or you 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 have been the host of your own podcast. Um, but you've also spoken, I think, really compellingly about um, what it was like to be sidelined or even smeared by the mainstream media while you were on the campaign trail. Um, and I I guess the question is, what do you think the role of, you know, so-called alternative media can play in advancing progressive politics today? Um, And I actually ask quite a few guests this question because um, it's kind of a conundrum, right? Like on the one hand, you have a huge platform, but on the other hand, you know, you and and Bernie Sanders and many other people uh, who are part of the left are still fighting to be heard in some way on uh, by mainstream media. Does it matter? Mm -hmm.
2: I
3: think that independent media is is everything, everything right now. The Telecommunications Act in 1996, which was passed by a Democratic president, uh, Bill Clinton, so corporatized. This is what it it corporatized the media. This is what created what we call today the mainstream media. These are corporate entities that are serving their own short-term profit. That's what they're serving before they're serving any journalistic standards of ethics and and educative function in the society the only place where you see the real pillars, not the only place, there are people working within mainstream media who are, who are, who are making the effort, and some of whom I met and, 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 and felt treated me, fair, treated me fairly during the campaign. But for the most part, what, what I saw very closely is that there is a, a political media industrial complex. And truth-telling is not their bottom line. at all. Exploiting and manipulating the masses with, with whatever message they feel would either gain them power or wealth is what the game is that is being played. So the real journalistic lights in our society today are in the independent media. And that's what is so extremely important. That's why all of us are holding so strongly on this idea of censorship, net neutrality, and so forth. Will it get us anywhere? Absolutely, it will get us somewhere, because ultimately, social change does not occur along a horizontal axis. Social change ultimately occurs on a vertical axis. What do I mean by that? If you're just trying to get power or change the society by getting more and more people to agree with you, then you're willing to dumb down your message or manipulate the message or do whatever you feel you need to do in order to get more clicks or more voters. If what you're dedicated to is telling the truth as best you can, it's vertical. And ultimately, society moves in the direction of the deeper truth. So I think people need to be less concerned about the majority. The majority, the status quo does not disrupt itself ever. The majority doesn't didn't wake up one day and say, let's end slavery, shall we? The majority didn't wake up one day and say, I have an idea. Let's give women the right to vote. That's not how social change occurs. It changes because enough people, a critical mass of people, usually considered outliers and outrageous radicals by the status quo of their time, which was always tough, have a better idea, and they stand on it, and they stand on it with conviction. Conviction is a force multiplier. And the problem we have today is that haters are so convicted. The problem we have today is that bigots are so convicted. The problem that we have today is that racists are so convicted. The problem that we have today is that anti-Semites are so convicted. We have to stand together. And remember how many of us there really are, both in terms terms of the polls, in terms of people like yourselves and all of us. There's so many voices out there. We're there. We know each other. This is there. We have to... Stand on what we know and practice what we know. And just remember, this is, this is, this is resonating. There's, there, we're building a field of energy. Now, if I want to think only in material terms, then I go into the same place of, I could go into the same place of despair that many understandably go into now, which is, but how are we going to do it? The Democratic Party, look what they did to Bernie in, six, in 2016. Look what they did to Bernie in 2020. God knows I know how it works but it doesn't matter. So if I, within the belly of that beast, and saw what happens when a Tom Perez of the world says, get that woman off the stage, and three days later, the lies about you, the same lies, the same talking points are everywhere you look. If I can still say, doesn't matter. Let's just keep going. Because you take, you know, we took an inch. You, you, it, you just, if it, on any given day, and I know you feel that way about your own work, you got an inch of ground today. And somebody else got an inch of ground today. Somebody else got an inch of ground today. Somebody else wrote an article. Somebody else had a podcast. And somebody else did something. I I know it. I can feel it in my gut. And um, we're going to get there. Because I do believe, and I think that the majority of Americans believe, that something about what this country is founded on is important. And we don't want it to go down. The world would not be a better place if it went down. And I think there are enough of us to feel a deep commitment that we're going to do what we can, uh, that it won't go down on our watch.
0: I'm actually really glad you said that, because before you came on, we started the episode by talking a little bit about, like, well, is the left, like, in a little bit of a lull after 2020? I think the answer is yes. Um, But I think that you have um, provided an actually, like, kind of inspiring response to that. So. Mm -hmm.
3: Good, good. You just have to keep going. You know, it's a one sort of phrase. I don't know who said it, but it's a marvelous phrase. that has really guided me to be fully invested in an effort and unattached to the outcome. Mm -hmm. Just be invested in the effort and what it looks like and when it happens, we can't know but we just keep putting one foot in front of the other each and every day. Do what you can. If today you were taken by the Assange issue or today you're taken by an environmental issue or today you're taken by a sex trafficking issue or today you're taken by a racial justice issue or today you're taken by an electoral issue or today you're taken by a Steven Donziger issue, whatever it is, whatever it is, whatever's in front of you, whatever you saw online, how can you amplify it? How can you add to the power? How can you add to the energy? It's like if you look at a great athlete, that's what makes an athlete great. If you look at, let's say, a great tennis player. Let's say a great tennis player drops a ball, and it's some dumb move that they haven't, a mistake they haven't made since they were twelve years old. During the game, they don't have time to say, "Oh shit," they don't have time. You just got to keep going, and that's how we have to be. We can't. We don't have, we do not have the time to indulge anger. We do not have the time to indulge immaturity. We do not have the time to indulge despair we don't have the time to do anything other than just keep going and uh you cry when you have to cry and you get upset for an hour or so when you need to get upset you go through whatever you had to go through i i know about that i know about how you have to heal from all that sometimes because it's painful and then you get up and you uh put on your best whatever and you go out there and you know that uh you weren't born to be held out
1: This might have to be our last question, but um, you became active in the anti Vietnam War movement in the 1970s. And I think some on the left. 60s and 70s. And um, I think some on the left sometimes might romanticize the movements of the 60s and 70s a little bit and not totally without reason. But how would you kind of assess the strengths and weaknesses of the social movements of that era? And I, I kind of look at that as the last era you know, the last real American left with with size and influence before what's growing today. Um, you know, how would you assess those movements as compared to what's been uh, bubbling up today?
3: In what way do you feel it's been over-romanticized or romanticized at all?
1: Well, I think sometimes in, in popular culture um, and, and movies, like the story that's told is, ob- as always with popular culture, not not really as much depth as what really took place or I think there's a lot of times a romanticization of what happened and then leaving out then what happened afterwards, you know, and then how how are we in this current place from that? You know,
3: I actually don't feel it's uh, romanticized. I think it is something to look at. You know, young people sometimes have said to me, Oh, you're, you know, your generation, you're all about drugs, sex and rock and roll. My answer to that is always, that was just part of the day. The other part of the day, we stopped the war. We stopped the war. And for that matter, the sex, drugs, and rock and roll, I know some people who could use more sex, drugs, and rock and roll. They could use more of the cultural and personal revolution that goes along with the political revolution that fuels it. And that was a sense there. You know, we read Ram Dass in the morning and went to anti-war protests in the afternoon. And there, there was not a sense. I feel so sorry for young people today because we did not feel, we knew that the system was rigged but we didn't feel that it was unrigable, and it wasn't. We did stop the war. There was civil rights legislation passed. There was um, voting rights uh, uh, legislation passed. That was in that era. It was in this era that the Voting Rights Act was gutted. Now, it was during that time, and in response to all that, yes, very romantic effort on the part of a generation, that a very serious effort was begun to decimate the American left. Like you said, it all fell apart. Well, they killed our leaders. They killed our leaders and in front of our eyes. They killed Martin Luther King in front of our eyes. They killed Bobby Kennedy in front of our eyes. They killed, And just in case we hadn't gotten the message, they killed those students at Kent State in front of our eyes. Talk about trauma. Talk about PTSD. It was a silent message but very loud, because you intend for all of us, there will be no further protest. You can do whatever you want in the private sector, leave the public sector alone, leave it to the hands of whoever it is that wants to control it so badly that they will kill in order to do so. That's what we did. That's what many people did. We, we knew well, they might kill you too. That was very clear. But what has happened now that I find so interesting is that there's a generation of us that did what we were told and who now are of an age where we find the idea of dying, knowing that we didn't really do what we came here to do, actually scarier than the thought that they might kill us if we do. And there is like a a third on the piano. I'm finding this fascinating um, I always say I like older people and I like younger people. It's those people in between that are so hard to take because the younger people coming up have this visceral, it's, it's your life's depend on it. And I appreciate that. And there's a, there's a, there's an, uh, what do they call it today? An intergenerational resonance, which is very good because some of us are, are, we have to do this work. We have to make this effort. We have to wage this, this revolutionary spirit. So that we can die, and others of us, we have to do it so that we can live. There is so much gold in all of that. There is so much gold. And so, yes, I think the older you are, the more you know certain things. The younger you are, the more you know certain other things. Every generation has its own gifts, every generation has its own wisdom. And uh, this is not a time to be putting down the young, it's not time to be putting down the old, it's time to be appreciating each other, working together. And uh, I can tell you, I lived at a time where we felt the same frustration people feel today. I admit we didn't feel the system was as rigged as people feel it is today. We also saw the Democratic Party as more of an ally than the left feels it is today. But um, I believe in miracles, and this country has seen them. There was no reason to believe that the abolitionists could actually achieve abolition. There was no reason to believe that women could actually achieve the right to vote. There was no reason to believe that uh, desegregation of the American South would be possible. But there were those who did believe, who did create that space of conviction and faith and possibility, and I think that we're going to do the same thing in this generation. And I have that faith, and I have faith not only in a higher power, I have faith in us. And um, that's where Joe Biden, and I do agree, uh, don't count us out. You don't know who we are if you're going to count us out.
0: So, Marianne, before we uh, let you go, in addition to, of course, being a champion for Nina Turner, uh, as you have been, and Stephen Donziger, who you've been speaking about uh, publicly lately, are there any, you know, other causes or forthcoming books or projects that you're working on that you want to quickly shout out?
3: Yeah, Daniel Hale. Because, you know, at first, there was. We have to talk about Assange, and we have to talk about Donziger, and also now uh, Daniel Hale. This idea of the way the system is attacking whistleblowers should be of great concern to all of us. Great concern to all of us, and I believe that for the sake of free speech, uh, for the sake of um, standing up against military secrecy, uh, which is a is a pillar of of, of imperialist uh, militaristic activity. So yes, I hope that we will all, I know it's tiring. I know it's exhausting. Every time you feel you've got one, you've got to do another, but we do. So I hope that more and more people will become aware of the Daniel Hale case in addition to Assange and in addition to Donziger. Um, and thank you for asking my book, Politics of Love will be coming out in paperback, uh, I think in August. And, uh, I will be doing more, more things next month. And, um, if people go onto my social media, I'm not quiet about any of it when it happens.
0: (laughs) As I said before, Marianne does have a YouTube channel, so check that out.
3: (laughs) And I have great conversations. I just had a conversation recently with Daniel Ellsberg. Uh, I've had some really, really good conversations recently. And uh, a new podcast that is coming out. I recently, uh, well, some of those interviews, I don't, I'm afraid to say any of the other names because, okay, what about the people that I didn't say? But uh, anybody can go to my social media and see the things we've been doing. Plus Candidatesummit.com because I have endorsed some great progressive uh, uh, congressional primary candidates. And if I may say something about that, I find that the progressive movement, one of the places where I I think some growth could could be achieved here, or some movement, I don't know if you call it growth. You know, the right creates stars, the left only wants to embrace people who are already stars. Mm. But there are so many great progressives who are. Because they're not corporate backed, because they don't have their own personal wealth, because the Chuck Schumers of the world, the Adam Schiff's of the world are doing everything possible to make them not the candidate. I mean, look at this proxy war that's happening in Ohio 11. But This is being acted Mm -hmm. out in every district. There are a lot of people who aren't, they're not as powerful as Nina Turner yet, but you get them out there, they will be as powerful as Nina Turner. So I hope people will go to candidatesummit.com and other places where you can see that there are wonderful people running in these primaries and they need the support now. Create the next political leaders. Don't just bemoan the fact that the leaders we have aren't doing what you want them to do. Don't just think in terms of pressuring them. Think in terms of replacing them. And uh, we do enough of that and get enough of that started. I think some really great things can happen in the next few years.
1: All right. Thank you so much, Marianne, for joining us.
3: Thank you. Thank you. It was wonderful being
0: with you. Thank you, Marianne. All right. That was a great note to end on. Um, I think that the... uh, you know the 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 point about Republicans making stars, I think, is so true, and it's also the case that Republicans have put so much of their time and energy into, uh, you know, state and local races, whereas I think for a long time Democrats kind of uh, looked at the larger congressional races, or of course the presidential races, and those are important too. Um, but uh, I think Mike Davis has a really good analysis of how you know. Uh, you wake up after a couple decades and the Republicans control every state legislature. So,
1: right. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's, so uh, I
0: I definitely co-sign her need to, you know, from the left kind of um, uh, create a new generation or like create a new cohort of progressive politicians.
1: Right. And it kind of goes back to the Barry Goldwater thing where, I mean, he lost Mm -hmm. that election badly, but the right wing really went to work at the local level and really, built up an infrastructure that we're seeing the results of now. Mm
0: -hmm. Right. Right. It was invisible until it wasn't. Right. All right. Well, um, on that note, uh, it's been a kind of longer show for us. Uh, We had two different guests, uh, but I really enjoyed speaking with both Matt and Marianne, obviously. Um, Matt, as I said, we're hoping to get back at some point as (laughs) our kind of unofficial welfare state correspondent. (laughs) Um, and just again, uh, next week, we will be back uh, with Adolf Reed and Walter Ben Michaels, our faves, so don't miss that.
4: Hey, it's me, it's the producer.
0: And Young Kale has a message.
4: I've arrived. Um, no, I, I want to thank uh, Matt and Marianne as well. Um, this is a, I, As the producer, I'm going to say it was a good episode. Sorry, guys. <laughs> um, but um, sad to end on a little bit of a, a more dour note. Uh, we just... You know, unfortunately, we we missed this uh, the other week because we were off, um, and then we also got uh, additional sad news today that uh, two important left journalists have recently passed away. Uh, the first being Don Foster. Don uh, has been a writer for Jacobin for most of our history, really. Um, you can go back and in, in her uh, in our backlog and, and read some of our articles. Um, I really recommend people check out, uh, her coverage of the Grenfell Tower fire and collapse, uh, back in 2017. Uh, her, her article's titled Very Political Tragedy. Um, Dawn was someone who, uh, she was a working class person and that reflected in her, her political coverage. And, uh, it's something that's sorely, uh, lacking in general in, in media, obviously, uh, especially, uh, British media, um. And uh, and so not only did we lose a working class journalist, but someone who is as brilliant, eloquent and as compassionate as Don was. Um, and uh, she was someone that really and you can see this in her writing that, you know, she looks at something like the Grenfell Tower uh, disaster. And, you know, her answer to that isn't like, wow, it, you know, it's so bad that, you know, uh, these people got trapped in this situation. It, we, we, you know, we should. You know we should feel bad about this and and be angry about it it was no this is a political situation that this was a political decision to put these people in this in this tower that uh policies and politics have determined their outcome that this there's no reason why they had to have ended up in this in this disaster and so she she was always able to keep these these two threads in mind both the um the actual coverage of what's going on and then the kind of, the political trajectory the political trajectory of like why this is happening not naturalizing disaster and and chaos in the world but saying no actually we we deserve a much better world than this um so she is sorely missed uh and Mm -hmm. we extend our condolences um we also uh got news earlier today of the loss of glenn ford um paul do you want to maybe say something briefly about glenn
1: yeah um Glenn Ford was the editor of Black Agenda Report. Um, I was lucky enough to see him speak in person at a conference at Temple University a few years back. Um, And, you know, Black Agenda Report, for those familiar, and if you're not, you should definitely check them out. I mean, they really, when we're in the wilderness for years, advancing a critique that, thankfully, I think is becoming more common now. And I think something we try to talk a lot about in the show, but really critiquing narrow identity politics, really taking a critical view on black politics in the United States. Um, And, you know, some of the first to really call out, um, you know, the, a lot, a lot of people um, and and politicians that kind of very cynically use identity um, and and how that hurts the majority of black working people. Um, You know, so they, I kind of see them as trailblazers in that, and, you know, that's become more popular. They were out there critiquing Obama very stridently and very critically at a time when that was very difficult to do. Um, so Glenn Ford will definitely be sorely missed and definitely miss his analysis. And, you know, not too long before, we also had lost Bruce Dixon from Black Agenda Report. Um, so, you know, I just want to honor Glenn Ford and
4: he's definitely going to be missed on the left. Yeah. And just to echo Marianne's final point that, you know, we need a new generation of of socialist organizers and activists and thinkers. But um, that also includes journalists, that uh, working class journalists who, Actually, understand what working class life is like, and actually uh, go and speak with working people instead of just kind of pontificating about them from you know some New York, uh, the New York Times office. I'm I'm attacking the New York Times right now. Uh, (laughs) You um, don't you don't call them to wish them happy birthday just like Bernie. No, mm, uh, they don't. They don't return my calls. So so you are trying. It's a mutual disrespect. Uh, the best kind. No, we're, we're obviously, we're all really cool with the New York Times. Um, But (laughs) the point, the point being, we, we need more like serious uh, working class journalists and uh, analysts of of what's going on right now um, that uh, can't, you know, they're not going to appear out of nowhere. And, um, you know, and when tragedy strikes, you really feel the loss. So, Mm -hmm.
0: So, uh, at the end of this episode, you basically have three options, become a working class journalist, uh, run for office or become a shop steward.
4: That's right. There you go. Only three. Or start a YouTube channel. (laughs)
0: Right. (laughs) All right. Um, well, this was a great show. Um, again, please tune in next week for Adolf Reed, uh, uh, frequent interviewee and contributor to black agenda report I'm by sorry. the way mm-hmm. uh and walter ben michaels i think that's going to be a really fun interview um and uh we will see you all next week
4: Hit hey, like hit subscribe share us Do hit the buttons they're in front of you you can see the buttons Hit the buttons okay hit them bye guys
0: <laughs> good night